0: Hi, welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Will, possibly a hologram, but less two pack and more emergency medical hologram Mark One.
1: And I'm Leah, appearing across multiple dimensions, nay you.
0: And we come to you this week with some truly tremendous breaking news. About less breaking and more bouncing. Because in a physics breakthrough, scientists have created a nano trampoline to probe quantum behaviour. I-, I don't either, no.
1: Based on our reading, the goal of the trampoline is to help scientists to make measurements regarding the way substances' behaviour changes when they are close to a quantum state change. Now, the real reason we're talking about this is less about the science, which will probably be useful somehow at some point in a way which, you know, you won't be able to demonstrate in a school science lab. But it's just we have been having trouble reporting on these these bleeding edge physics stories because there is no way to make sense of them in a in a real world accessible sort of way
0: context is important and when the context of this story is we've developed a new super thin material to make a nano trampoline so we can measure the fluctuations in the quantum state of things as we change their Energy, but not their temperature, and the energy it takes to change the temperature is different at these quantum phase it's It's a bit of a stretch yeah. for us as communicators to try and get a hold of and translating that into anyone out of you know the six billion people in this world who aren't professional scientists, most of whom are then still not going to be professional physicists amongst the scientists in that you know the one two billion left.
1: Yeah, bearing in, bearing in mind that we both have a higher than average level of basic science education, it, yeah, it's, it, it bears mentioning that there is a serious break in the process from the people who are doing this research who presumably understand what they're doing, passing the message down to lay people who might not even be interested in science their only interaction with it is going to be
0: by the time it turns into technology in their homes
1: It's going to be where it directly interacts with them. So things like this where the the real world applications are at this point unknown because there's no real world equivalencies you have to make them up like the nano trampoline.
0: Please don't take this to be us deterring physics research because so much good can come from researching physics in ways that isn't immediately obvious All the benefits that have come to us from the space program, for example, like freeze-dried food, fire extinguishers, velcro. But there is, like you say, a break and I can see the break in the press release where you can read through and think I understand these few words and the next sentence just doesn't make sense.
1: After the basic introduction, Where you get into the meat of the article, they're they're defining terms. So we have the term critical point is used to describe usually the temperature at which a substance changes state. For example, in the sense of the regular everyday physics that we actually encounter while interacting with the world. This is stuff like the way small gas bubbles form in water as it begins to boil.
0: The wetness of ice still being frozen solid.
1: Around this point, the amount of energy you have to put in to increase temperature changes. Phase transition being the changing from one state to another. So the ice to water and water to vapor transitions. The fact that the critical point is the temperature where this transition takes place. And around this point, you have interesting physical phenomena. And like up until this point, It's all making sense and then you get into the quantum stuff and it starts to become abundantly clear why your alternate medicine woo merchants can use quantum to justify what they're doing as being sensible and scientific because...
0: See if you can spot where the woo enters in this paragraph. In recent years, the scientific community has shown growing interest in a quantum phase transition in which a system transits between two states at absolute zero temperature, minus 273 degrees Celsius, as a result of manipulating a physical parameter such as a magnetic field, pressure, or chemical composition instead of temperature. With me so far? In these transitions, the change occurs not due to the thermal energy provided to the system by heating, but rather by quantum fluctuations. Okay. Although absolute zero is not physically attainable, characteristics of the transition can be detected in the system's very low temperature behaviour near the quantum critical point. So, not quite absolute zero, but as close as we can get. Such characteristics include quantum bubbles of one phase in the other. The size and lifetime of these quantum bubbles increase as the system is tuned towards the critical point, giving rise to the quantum equivalent of critical opalescence.
1: Hmm? And I think this is one of the the reasons we'd really benefit from having a guest physicist. Sometimes um, we're we're still open to people for volunteering for that. By the way, if you if you if you understand what that means and you would like to help us explain it, volunteer to be a guest physicist on our show.
0: Yeah, preferably in person, so you can have a whiteboard and just like talk to us like we are three year olds just like small words simple ideas please because
1: and this research may well bring us some very interesting results and some interesting findings this particular article is basically reporting on the development of the nano trampoline to allow the researchers to measure the phenomena they're finding at this quantum critical point um they've got to keep the whole system very very cold They have to be able to measure a system that is a molecule thick, probably.
0: And very thin things working at very low temperatures could be useful, again, in space, where things are very close to absolute zero and you might be working with some very thin systems. But, yeah, uh, small words for small brains, please. The
1: conclusion drawn in the press release... This work is expected to be a milestone in the understanding of physical processes that govern the behaviour of ultra-thin systems at ultra-low temperatures.
0: I can't tell you that it's not.
1: Probably at some point this will feed into some very, very useful real-world applications, but until that point... um, Maybe
0: we should stick with something that's a bit easier to understand, such as our next press release here, that dogs are quite good at finding cats.
1: This is specifically an example of one of the many cut times when doing things the old-fashioned way There's a reason we do them the old-fashioned way. In this case, instead of using the typical modern sampling methods to keep track of a population of wild animals so get in a helicopter and see if you can count them from the air or walk about having a look around to see if you can find remains of meals. Some researchers looking for cheetah in Western Zambia had trouble finding any using these these usual methods, so they had to fall back on techniques that humans have been using for a very, very long time.
0: And you want to know who's really good at tracking animals? Tracking animals. Animals that have been, you know, bred and trained to track. So. There's a picture of a detection dog in this. Sniffing around on the ground, they've got dogs who are going out looking for signs of cheetah. Cheetah meals, cheetah scat, whatever has been left by a cheetah, and is helping establish the population of cheetahs in Western Zambia much more effectively than a guy poking around in a bush with a stick, hoping to not get his face eaten.
1: Though You'd be very unlucky to get your face eaten by a cheetah. They're very fragile and easy to fight off.
0: How do you know?
1: I spent a while in my teen, teens being kind of obsessed with big cats.
0: So you, you've you not physically fought a cheetah. No,
1: I haven't physically fought a cheetah. Tigers, yes. Cheetahs, no.
0: If you have physically fought a cheetah, then please get in touch. If you're a cheetah fighter who knows quantum technology, then we really need you on this show. You can find us on Twitter, at Eureka Nerdcast, or reach us through nerdcast at gmail.com. That's nerdcast at gmail.com.
1: And now wellness stopped being silly, let's move on to something which on the surface of it is quite silly.
0: I think this is silly through and through.
1: A team at Queen Mary University of London has taught bees essentially to play golf. There are potentially not silly applications in terms of behavioural
0: science. Um, but especially silly opening sentences like, Bumblebees can be trained to score goals using a mini ball. Revealing unprecedented learning abilities, according to scientists at QMUL. I like how they establish it's a mini-ball, as opposed to any of those super-balls we're accustomed to. A ball is a ball no matter the size.
1: I mean, some bumblebees are very big. They're
0: not, you know, football-sized. Some balls are very small.
1: No, I think this is an interesting thing to have looked into. Um, you know, that honeybees have got quite good at learning, especially you know, as a hive rather than as an individual bee, but bumblebees being a usually solitary species, it's an interesting area of study, especially since the goal, not the bee's goal, the researcher's goal, in terms of this is trying to establish if species whose lifestyle demands advanced learning abilities might be able to develop entirely new behaviours under ecological pressures.
0: And Dr. Clint Perry, a joint lead author from the School of Biological and Chemical Sciences, says We wanted to explore the cognitive limits of bumblebees which is a great sentence by testing whether or not they could use a non-natural object in a task likely never encountered by any individual in the evolutionary history of bees. They do quantify that it's likely never happened. They may have been golfing bees in the past, but there wasn't any reference data available, so they think they're working on something new here.
1: The goal of the bees in the study is to roll a ball into a little hole, at which point they get a food reward. Some of them were shown a bee that was trained previously performing the task. Some didn't involve any bees. They just were shown the task being performed using a magnet to roll the ball. Some were initially introduced to the task by finding it already completed.
0: And there is a clear progression from just seeing the effect, to having the ghost effect where they move the ball with a magnet, no bees are involved, to seeing a bee move the ball to get food outcomes, that it's more and more effective if you can see other bees being a bee, doing the action, getting the reward, and co-author Professor Lars Chitka says that our study puts the final nail in the coffin of the idea that small brains constrain insects to have a limited behavioural flexibility and only simple learning abilities.
1: I do think it's interesting that the bees who were shown another bee doing it did so much better at learning the task when bumblebees are not a social species, or when most bumblebee species are solitary, they don't do the social stuff like honeybees do.
0: And it wasn't just copying, but that the bees solved the task in a different way to what was demonstrated, suggesting, this is Dr. Ollie Lockler here speaking, that the observer bees didn't simply copy what they saw, but improved upon it. So yeah, there's repetition, and then there's improvement, and that is learning and refining. That is...
1: It's not just bumble-see, bumble-do. They're actually working it out for themselves. And there is a video of uh, one of the bees performing the task, and it's it's as adorable as you expect it to be.
0: Unfortunately, they don't have the sound effect of someone shouting, go and the crowd going wild but i'm sure you can sync that up for yourselves at home
1: yeah i'm sure you can manage to provide your own sound effects and in further news about small clever animals well we don't know how clever they are but scientists in india have discovered seven new frog species in the genus Nyctibatrachus, commonly known as night frogs
0: four of these are in fact the miniature forms Size between 1.2 and 1.5 centimetres. Which is to say, a tiny frog that will sit entirely happily just on your thumb. These are in fact the smallest known frogs in the world, and you should not be licking any of them.
1: (laughs) As we discussed last week, Will is very opposed to the licking of frogs and toads, I can see why you might want to do it. You should probably do it with caution. Especially these particularly tiny frogs.
0: You could get a whole mouthful of them.
1: Yeah, which, I mean, I I expect that would give you something of a stomach upset. A mouthful of
0: frogs. All seven of these new frogs could fit in your mouth at once.
1: (laughs) There are a spectacular number of new frogs being discovered currently. The Western Ghats, the area where they were looking has witnessed an exponential increase in the number of new amphibian species described in the last 10 years, which, I mean the idea of an exponential rise in new species is mind-blowing in itself.
0: Between 2006 and 2015 a total number of new species of amphibians came to 1,581 new species.
1: With 103 from This one region of India and Sri Lanka, unfortunately for these new frogs, a lot of them are only endemic to this specific region and to very specific bits of woodland and plantation in this
0: region, Um, so... They are instantly endangered, but admittedly, better than we hadn't known about them at all. Because as soon as you can identify that there is a biological niche at risk, then you can do something to prevent any further damage, any further loss.
1: I think it is interesting the way that the research has confirmed these these frogs are new species. They've used an integrated taxonomic approach and included DNA studies, detailed morphological comparisons, and bioacoustics. Uh, One of the interesting qualities of especially the miniature species which may have led to them having been overlooked is that their calls are more like those of insects than other frogs.
0: But hopefully something can be done to save these miniature frogs before it is too late and they are completely doomed. On the subject of which...
1: That was such a segue.
0: Doomed is the new online learning approach for robotics modelling and I want to start off by just laying it out there for any engineers, roboticists, listening to this podcast calling your project Doomed. Just call it Skynet and be done. Just give up, go for the full lava lair, evil genius. I am going to rule the world with my super space laser or something, because if you've got the doomed approach to robotics.
1: I mean, happily, doomed does stand for something.
0: This was an absolute backronym. They came up with doomed first and then made it fit.
1: So, Doomed is the direct online optimization of modelling errors in Dynamics, and is essentially a system to allow robots to self-correct on the fly, in the wild.
0: Okay, let's give a few of my other favourite acronyms, such as the, the Massive Astrophysical Compact Halo Object, or Macho, and its opposite, the Weakly Interacting Massive Particle, or WIMP.
1: If it works the way... It's intended to. Doomed robots might be less doomed than non-doomed
0: robots. But more dooming?
1: Possibly. If they're better at moving around, they can do more damage.
0: Does that mean that these people have built doom-bots?
1: Quick, someone get me a metal mask and a big green cloak.
0: Now we take the fight to that fool, Richards.
1: Happily, any fool knows. The best way to defeat Doctor Doom is with squirrels.
0: For more on that, look up Marvel Superheroes Winter Special for the X-Men, Namor, and Iron Man collection, which features Squirrel Girl's first classic appearance, True Believers. And editor-in-chief of Big Data, the journal in which this is published, Vasant Dar, says that a major challenge in robotics is designing systems that behave in predictable ways based on some analytical model of the process. Which is a useful way of getting the robots to learn, is to give them the same thing over and over again and make sure they do it. However... In reality, even if such analytical models exist, they are rarely accurate enough in situations that represent all combinations of heat, wear and tear, cable stretch, etc. Situations that a system encounters in reality, in such situations, it is useful to complement models with data collected as a result of real-world operation. Real-world robotic systems need to be robust enough to correct errors on the fly. And this could be especially useful if we're all going to be zooming around in... Autonomous cars and self-driving vehicles sometime soon that they can correct on the fly and learn in a doom-based way. Imagine if, in ten years' time, an Uber pulls up to your door, you get in. There's no driver in the front, but it says, "Welcome to your doom mobile. How may I doom you?" <sighs> and off you doom.
1: Anyway, moving on to things which might undo us a little. You know how. There's lots of bacteria that are developing antibiotic resistance and it's causing all kinds of problems.
0: This genuinely keeps me up at night,
1: yeah. Uh, So one of the big problems with that is people turning up at the doctors with a cold or the flu and getting antibiotics for it, even though it's not going to help. So some research from the Duke University Medical Center may put paid to this problem once and for all, because they are in the process of developing easy, cheap testing to identify if your runny nose is due to a viral infection or a bacterial one.
0: And this is a test with 86% accuracy in confirming if the infection is from a virus or bacterial source, which is pretty good going as a first effort. The idea that someone can just stick a swab up your nose, wait for the machine to go beep-boop, and tell you if, oh wait, no, we can cure this, or go home, have some Beecham's, and stay out of everyone's way.
1: This is only a small proof-of-concept trial, so the sample size is tiny. They infected 88 healthy adult volunteers with common strains of colds and flu. Obviously, not all the participants developed infections, but in those who did, by flushing about two teaspoons of saline through participants' nasal passages, researchers found a distinct set of 25 proteins which can be used, hopefully, to tell you what flavour of infection you have.
0: Jeffrey Ginsberg, MD, PhD, senior author of the paper, says that every day people are taking time off from work, going to the ER, urgent care, primary care doctors with symptoms of what appears to be upper respiratory infections, coughs, sneezes. Looking for these proteins could relatively easily, and in an inexpensive way, learning that a person has a viral infection and whether or not the use of antibiotics is appropriate.
1: This is less invasive than trying to identify pathogens through blood samples and could prove it's worth a in cutting down on unnecessary use of antibiotics and b by being very accessible for people in rural settings developing countries just inaccessible places and might even help to contain epidemics of particularly bad strains of flu by being able to screen people at the airport
0: it's also going to be very useful for children because if you as an adult have been out in the wet and cold and you think oh i might have got a cold from you know these conditions then you can kind of plan ahead and say well it's probably just a cold or a touch of the flu it's probably not a full-blown lung infection but a kid they are just a snotty, garbling mess. They are not going to help with any history, and they're not going to help with any etiology But if you can stick something up their nose, flush your child's face full out of gunk, and then tell them Hey kid, here's some pills that make you better, or Sorry kid, you're just going to feel like crap for a couple of days, here's a lolly Then that speeds up the process a lot more, especially for parents who are very concerned for their child's well-being and won't leave until they've got some pills Moving on to our next story, well, there's no simpler way to say this than the title, Cat Ownership Not Linked to Mental Health Problems.
1: A study contradicting the results of a few previous studies, which have shown that growing up with cats uh, might be linked to serious mental illnesses, psychosis, um, schizophrenia.
0: And it's something of a media trope it's almost a social expectation that some people will just be you know the crazy cat lady the crazy cat guy who's well entirely as the name suggests crazy and with cats
1: and the thinking behind this is that the common parasite toxoplasma gondii which has been implicated in for example road rage in humans might be contributing to people potentially developing psychosis, especially if they've had cats growing up or their parents had cats while their mother was pregnant with them. But... while
0: Toxoplasma gondii can have a great number of nasty effects in children, such as birth defects and blindness, it isn't explicitly related to the onset of mental illness. And this is a study looking at about two decades of data here from about 5,000 people. So it's a pretty large data set.
1: Lead author Dr Francesca Solmi of UCL Psychiatry has made a point of mentioning the difference between their study and the previous studies which did show a link. Initial unadjusted analyses did suggest a small link between cat ownership and psychotic symptoms at age 13 but this turned out to be due to other factors. Once we controlled for household overcrowding and socio-economic status for example the data no longer showed the link with cat ownership. So previous studies reporting the links between cats and psychosis were probably just not controlling for these other factors.
0: Correlation and causation.
1: Are very different things, and it's important to keep them separate.
0: And coming back to the stories we've talked about before, such as the replication study for cancer studies, where they've been trying to replicate the results. Turns out that in this one, going back, looking at the same data, having a larger data set, tends to bear out a lot better than any incidental data or anecdotal conclusions that you've come to along the way. Our next study comes from Drexel University and is published in the Journal of Racial and Ethnic Health Disparities where they have found, in a way that may not be surprising to some listeners, that doctors' biases mean that black men don't get the same treatment in healthcare.
1: We've discussed before that that there's plenty of data regarding the fact that lots of people are racist lots of the people who come off worst when racism is involved are black people and once again people are racist that racism can affect the way they're treating other people and if you're a health care provider obviously that can have some very serious implications
0: you've seen racism borne out quite publicly in some cases through the handling of police and social issues through political issues and it does carry over that doctors are people too and like you say some people are racist and this study conducted by marie plazine and supervised by jennifer taylor associate professor in the dawnsife school of public health titled healthcare providers formative experiences with race and black male patients in urban hospital environments
1: and the results back up quantitative studies that found black men less likely to receive cardiac medical procedures such as cardiac catheterizations and coronary angioplasty when compared to white men who are presenting with identical symptoms, Um, with this study taking a qualitative approach, looking into whether the healthcare providers they were questioning have had formative experiences which may have contributed to those biases or in fact grown up in neighbourhoods that are so white that they've never encountered any black people at all, so they don't really know how to deal with that situation.
0: And Taylor says that racial bias in healthcare is worrying, because one of the highest values for medical practice is do no harm, and whether explicit or implicit, our racial biases can direct patients to different and unequal treatments that do not make them whole. No one goes into medicine wanting this to happen, so we must look at both our personal and professional socialisation to check in on how those experiences may influence our actions as caregivers.
1: They interviewed uh, medical providers who were both black and white, and they all described examples of black male patients being treated differently for you know, no reason other than being black men. So a physician being aware that a black patient wasn't being offered a procedure. Obviously, this is in America where they have to pay for healthcare. care. So the physician suggested that this bias may be based on an expectation of that person's economic status. The patient clearly needed to be catheterized for the presentation. This wasn't being offered until specifically bringing it up with the cardiologist that That should be what we're doing. White providers describing experiencing fear and discomfort when presented with black patients.
0: In contrast, black providers share their frustration with media portrayal of black men, the pressure they feel to avoid confirming negative stereotypes associated with black culture, and instances of patients even discriminating against them as healthcare providers.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember there being a story um, a couple of years back about a man who actually refused treatment because he was introduced to his surgeon and his surgeon was a black woman.
0: Coming back to the main headline of people are racist, some people are very racist.
1: Some people are so racist that they will cut off their own nose despite their racist face.
0: But they do at least acknowledge that when these instances of racism have been noted, like the patient not being offered catheterization as soon as it is raised, some people are ready to say, Oh, well we we should definitely offer that treatment because that's the standard of care in this situation. Just being aware of some bias and being challenged and checking in on it can have corrective causes.
1: Yeah, it's one of the reasons people who argue that discussing racism isn't useful, I think are wrong, is that you can't do anything about it until you acknowledge the problem. So being able to bring it up and not even necessarily saying, I think you're being racist, because in the moment that's just going to be counterproductive if someone decides they're going to be difficult about that. But being able to say...
0: Are we offering the full standard of care?
1: And, you know, afterwards, once the patient has gone home, you can go, why do you think you hadn't thought of that? Yeah, we can't change it unless we're willing to discuss it and acknowledge it.
0: Speaking of acknowledging failures, our next study from Duke University has found that Across states where hydraulic fracturing, or fracking, is being deployed to extract natural gas from shale deposits, 6,600 spills have been reported in four states. And that's not even the start of things.
1: And this is over a 10-year period, and the study has an interactive map as well, which we will link to, in case you happen to be based in one of these states and want to have a look at what might have been spilled near you. The four states they're looking at are Colorado, New Mexico, North Dakota and Pennsylvania over the course of 10 years.
0: Between 2 and 16% of gas wells that will leak hydrocarbons or polluted water into the surrounding environment. But here's where things get really hinky, is that the boundaries for reporting this data in each one of those four states is not equal.
1: So the researchers have pointed out in their study that they've found there is some difficulty in you know, interpreting this data because it's being collected under different conditions. So uh, in North Dakota, spills of more than 42 gallons have to be reported, whereas in Colorado and New Mexico, you don't have to report a spill until it's more than 210 gallons.
0: So if you are at a fracking well in... North Dakota, and you spill 50 gallons of hydrocarbons, that's going on the report. If you're in Colorado or New Mexico, that's a quarter of what it would take to raise any further issue.
1: But if you're just sort of looking at the raw numbers, you might then expect, if everyone's having the same rate of spills, to see maybe 800 to 1,000 spills reported in Colorado or New Mexico. Whereas, actually, New Mexico had the lowest number of spills reported at 426.
0: Again, that's just 426 spills over 210 gallons. The number below that volume? Unrecorded.
1: We have no idea. It may be nine times that, which would bring it up in line with the North Dakota figures.
0: And that is to say that over 10 years, 426 incidents, over 40 a year, of spilling 210 gallons, which, for those of you not working in Imperial, is just south of a thousand litres.
1: So this is a lot, a huge amount of pollutant being just dribbled out onto the countryside, into your water supplies... And
0: so much more, not even being recorded.
1: The aim of collecting the data for the study is to see what can be done about mitigating and reducing the number of spills that are happening. There's more spills likely in the first three years of a well's life. There's more spills likely if a spill has already occurred at a particular well. But honestly, the fact that there is so much being spilt kind of suggests that the fracking industry is not taking enough care and that actually we maybe shouldn't be focusing on this as a way of continuing to fuel our lifestyles
0: based on some of these numbers, it seems almost like more is being spilled than is being extracted with the sheer frequency and volume of some of these spills. And guess what? That natural gas that you're fracturing out is still going to run out. It is not renewable. It is just as limited and and polluting.
1: And it's still piling more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere.
0: It takes a lot of energy to get to that energy, which does not have any real lifespan to it but in the meantime what you can do is destroy environments destroy communities make people's water catch on fire in nearby towns and based on some evidence trigger seismic activity
1: so you know it'd be nice to put this study and as many like it that we can find just drop them on the prime minister's desk and go can we can we not that'd be nice of course In better fuel-related news, some experimentation with illuminated rhodium nanoparticles, which is a great sentence to say, may have given us a efficiently and relatively cheaply catalyzing carbon dioxide into methane, which can then be used as fuel.
0: And if you can capture and convert some of the waste gas that goes into extracting, for example, gas then the whole thing takes a lot lower impact on the environment and if you can then capture some of the carbon dioxide released by burning methane then what you've got there is an increasingly sustainable model of generating and releasing energy and this is research coming from duke university published in nature communications
1: now they used ultraviolet light as the energy source in this case their rhodium to catalyse this reaction with the rhodium nanoparticles And they're hoping to develop that technology to the point where they can do this just with sunlight.
0: Ji Liu, professor of chemistry at Duke University, says that the fact that you can use light to influence a specific reaction pathway is very exciting. This discovery will really advance the understanding of catalysts. And we've all covered catalysts in school. They are something that changes the energy required for a reaction.
1: Without being consumed by the reaction.
0: Importantly, that too, and Henry Everett, adjunct professor of physics at Duke, says that, effectively, plasmonic metal nanoparticles act like little antennas that absorb visible or ultraviolet light very effectively and can do a number of things, like generate strong electric fields. Which is a pretty sci fi sentence to say.
1: Even better for this particular reaction, using light in it doesn't only make the rhodium nanoparticles more efficient. It also makes the reaction favour the production of methane very strongly over an equal mix of methane and side products like carbon monoxide which they were getting before.
0: Now this study might end up on the pile of alternative sources for energy along with bacteria that can produce oil and mushrooms that produce natural gas from oil deposits, but anything seems to be better than the leaky, 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 leaky way that we've been getting a hold of natural gas so far. And on that entirely apolitical note, we come to a close.
1: No, I'm sorry, that's fucking hilarious.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And on that not entirely apolitical note, our podcast winds down to an end, but we've got time for just a few more quick studies before we leave you, such as... Kansas State University letting us know that a study has catalogued the complex flavours of American-made goat cheese.
1: Top of the list is goatiness.
0: And research from the University of Missouri-Columbia that if your boss is engaging in substance abuse, domestic violence and sexual indiscretion, it might not be so good for the company's profile. Seems to be fine for politicians, though.
1: Depends on your context. For some of them, a, a sex scandal is the end of their career. If you're French, they don't give a shit.
0: And if you do click through to this study about executive indiscretion, please note that the picture they've got is of the professor, not a violent, drug-addicted senior executive officer. But until next time, that's about all we've got. If you do have any questions or comments, then you can find us on Twitter, at Eureka Nerdcast, or send them to us via email at eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. That's
1: eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. And if you are enjoying our show, please do share us with your friends and leave reviews on iTunes and the like, because that helps us get more exposure.
0: With more exposure, maybe we can increase our catalytic activity. Wait, am I rhodium this week? No, I was something else. Never mind then. (laughs) But until next time, goodbye.
1: So the ball in its, in the goal hole, if you'll pardon the phrase. Um, the fucking transition was dire. Like, don't even bother. Just go, next story, if that's all you've got. Just, just don't <laughs> try and link it, please, for the love of God.
0: Hey, I'm the one who's going to have to listen back to this.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you are. Heidi, you're going to be embarrassed.
0: Now I'm going to leave this in. I think it's brilliant. And and
1: then and then and then and then then there's going to be unhappiness. Please don't.